Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, All Hands Vodka, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's podcast, we sit down with Josh Crumpton and former guest Drew Chacon to dive into Josh's ranch, Spokalo, and the mindset he has when it comes to creating on-ramps and education opportunities for newcomers. We discuss various ways for people to handle challenging learning curves and the mindset behind some of the world's best outdoorsmen and how we can all work to better think for ourselves, whether that be with land management or life. All around, there's a lot, and I mean a lot of insight in this podcast, and I had a blast recording this on Josh's ranch and hope that you enjoy our time together. Make sure to hang around after the podcast for a special live recording of Tanner Usry from our All Hands Hangout in Port O'Connor, where we get to hear some pretty amazing live music. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making enough fish you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Josh, thanks for allowing Drew and I to uh, spend a couple nights and get to hang out and hunt with you here at Spoke Hollow. I'm excited to talk about everything that you got going on here. You're a man that wears many hats, and it's been fun to hang out with you and Drew because you're both people that are easy to learn from, and you're both people who are really immersed in the things that you are passionate about. So it's a lot of fun for me just to hang out with you. But thanks so much for having both of us here and showing us your little piece of paradise. Man, it's been my pleasure. And uh, all the bad habits you leave here with, I take no credit for those. <laughs> the number one bad habit is going to be upland bird hunting. Yeah. That's... But it, it's pretty addictive. But I had a lot of fun with you today. And uh, it was great just to just to hang out and see everything from the fishing you have here to the hunting to the just even driving around the property and just seeing how, how beautiful it is and how much thought and intentionality you've, you've put into it, I think, is really great give us just a rundown because you are a man that wears many hats you're wearing a hat right now it's an ed anderson designed hat <laughs> but it's not <laughs> the only hat and you and you metaphorically wear a lot of hats tell us about all the different things that you have going on right now in your life and and how spoke hollow fits into that yeah so i'm a rancher um a hunting guide i don't do a lot of fishing guiding anymore but um on occasion uh, but I do run fishing guided trips out and in and around the hill country. Um, a mentor. I like to take people out and teach. And a conservationist. I donate my time to Trout Unlimited to work on cold water conservation. And you, one of the things I picked up today is 
whenever you're the type of person who doesn't just mentor, doesn't just have little kind of side things, you, you kind of like to frame and you have names for things, you have programs for things, you have initiatives that you're doing for you right now in, in your life, when you're running this ranch, you're involved in a lot of different organizations to you, what are some of your passion projects right now that you have going on? Yeah. So over the past, like three years, about three years ago, I got involved with the state, um, and we were working on some programs. Actually, it was a Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, which mm-hmm. is one of the nonprofits that supports Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. I got involved with them, and we started creating mentorship programs that were teaching people how to up- upland hunt mm-hmm. and teaching people how to fly fish. And that became a pet project. And I was going down that road for a while, <clears throat> and this past year I took a little break to reframe it and rewrite the way we do those programs. Um, and with an emphasis on bringing together more than just one nonprofit to work together. So that's one of my passion projects right now is definitely focused on bringing people from multiple nonprofits, some of them affinity groups that service minorities and some of them that service broad organizations Mm -hmm. and getting them in the outdoors to learn to hunt and fish with the goal, the express goal of just connecting people to nature because I feel that when people get connected to nature, they can begin to go down the road of becoming conservationists. And you're able, one of the neat things about this property that we're sitting at right now is you're able to accomplish a lot of that within a gator ride from right here. So if you, if somebody, if you were wearing a spoke hollow hat and somebody was at a bar and they walked up and you were just going to give them a quick pitch and they said, what's spoke hollow? How would you answer that? my house (laughs) (laughs) kind of sounds creepy when you put it that way yeah no i would say that it's um we're a thousand acre ranch in the texas hill country we're 45 minutes from austin an hour from san antonio uh 4.2 million people can make a drive to our uh ranch within an hour's time frame um we are in what is rapidly becoming a bedroom community of austin texas um we are surrounded by 50 and 10 acre and five acre lots. So we're in a space that is rapidly disappearing mm-hmm. from being a wild space. Um, what we provide is a touch point for people to access the outdoors. And we do that <clears throat> through guided fly fishing and hunting, foraging classes, um, primitive skills classes, um, basic camping introductions and through content Mm -hmm. podcasts having people out um dinners we do a lot of like just dinners in the field where Mm -hmm. we bring people out and we'll set up a meal for 100 people in the field and have musicians and beverages things that bring people out to a uncultivated space Mm -hmm. so that we can show them what the hill country looked like a hundred years ago. And on the fishing front, since this is a fishing podcast, what all fishing opportunities do you guys have right here? Cause I know that you like to go down to the coast and you really enjoy doing that. But right here, if somebody were to come up and spend some time here, what all opportunities do you guys have? Yeah. So we target bass, um, on the San Marcos river, the Guadalupe river, uh, the San Marcos river, the Guadalupe river, the Colorado river, um, we can take people striper fishing on Canyon Lake. I take people for wade trips on the Blanco. 
Um, we do have the southernmost trout fishery um, in the country. It is a stock fishery, but I think that it's a good place for people to learn about trout fishing if they want to learn about it. And then mm -hmm. they can push on to do further wild trout fishing from mm -hmm. that place. And on the hunting side, you guys have a pretty good variety here too. What does that look like? Yeah. So on the hunting side, primarily I focus on upland birds here at the Wimberley Ranch. So chucker, pheasant, quail. And again, Wimberley, I look at Wimberley, in fact, a lot of times I don't call it a ranch, I call it a campus. Mm -hmm. So I look at Wimberley as a place where we release birds here. If you're coming to learn to upland hunt, it's a good place to get an education on it. It's a good place for a new dog to learn about it or a new person to learn about it. Or if somebody can't get out to upland hunt and they just really need to get that fixed because as you learned, it's super addictive. <laughs> like they could come here and do that. Yeah. Um, but it's a jumping off point because we have um, properties in West Texas where we take people out to do further out experiences and chase wild birds out there. Mm -hmm. um, we can take people mule deer hunting in West Texas. Here on the ranch are, are white-tailed deer. Because we're a, <clears throat> a high-fence property and I don't really want to manage for antlers, which that seems to be the space that in the hunting world where all the money is, is right. Somebody pays you a bunch of money to come shoot a big old deer. That's got a big rack on it. Mm -hmm. That's never really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. So our white tail deer hunting is a hundred percent educational. Mm -hmm. We provide opportunities for people to come out, learn to shoot a deer, butcher a deer, and hopefully be a jumping off point for them to, to get into big game hunting. Yeah. I love the language campus because I don't know if I would have come up with that language, but thinking about even today for me, that's what it did feel like because, you know, we wake up, Drew and I have a cup of coffee. We're staying in a train, the caboose, <laughs> the caboose, a renovated train, which is, which is such a cool experience. And we're today we're, we were, we were really focused on two things that I, I didn't have any experience in. So I've quail hunted some growing up, but I've, I've not had any experience with pheasant. And then you, you guys have the Guadalupe bass, which I have not caught a Guadalupe bass. Mm -hmm. So today we're like, hey, let's try to learn about those two things. Let's try to do those two things. We check the pheasant off. We'll mm -hmm. see how tomorrow goes on the Guadalupe <laughs> bass. I'm not feeling great about uh, my angling skills on that, but <laughs> it, it's here and the opportunity is here. And really it was fun because looking back at even today, it was very much that educational experience. Like I'm, I'm getting to walk next to you. You're talking to me about how the dogs are working, about the pheasants, about the habitat, about how you're trying to manage the land in a way that works with the grain of what's happening here. And it very much does feel like the world's best learning campus. It's a lot funner than going to uh, math 1102. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. I wasn't good at math 1102. Drew, um, I'm curious your perspective too, as somebody who, you know, you're an all around outdoorsman who likes to fish and hunt and do all that. What was your first impression of just showing up here at Spoke Hollow? And what, what maybe to you was your favorite part if you had to try to pin it down? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, this is a pretty magical place. Um, you know, it's I would say it's kind of trapped in time as you kind of wind back the, the dirt road and get back in here. Um, it's, it's real vast. There's a lot of activities for the outdoorsmen to do here. I mean, it, it seems pretty pretty endless and exciting. You can, you can keep yourself busy doing any number of things. I was pretty enamored with just the fossils around the, the creek bed. We were walking, drinking our coffee this morning. Um, 
but the the bird hunting and watching the dogs work i mean that's always you know pretty special for me i I love doing the the walking with the dogs and even if we don't shoot any it's just fun being out there but you've got gin clear water you know a stone's throw from the caboose where we're staying and just watching those fish kind of cruise is reminiscent of you know we're what we do in florida sight fishing so you've kind of got the best of both worlds for any number of cast and blasts so yeah it's 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 hard to pin down and a quick jump to austin too which yeah and and wimberley's not too shabby you know because last night we were at a great pizza place Mm -hmm. which was called community 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 pizza yeah and today we went to a great bar and food truck called los abaje and um desert door distillery yeah desert door which is which is really fun and the food was incredible Mm. it was really great and drew and i was that your first sandhill crane that you got a chance to eat it was yeah. absolutely that was delicious and i had a, what, a nil guy no guy, guy burger which for those of you that know me i i can't really eat beef in the united states because of whatever they put in it it tears my stomach up but i i could have eaten those burgers all day those were amazing <laughs> i could have really hurt myself and so you got a quick yeah. drive to wimberley which there's there's some really interesting things going on there. Yeah. Like it's definitely a fun place to go and hang out. And I think anybody w- would enjoy that. And last night you guys were having a conversation at dinner that I got a chance just to sit in and listen to you about ideas about how to manage property in a way that works with the grain of what's happening geographically and the ecosystem here. And then you even had this kind of interesting approach about you were saying it's okay if certain things maybe that used to live here, maybe they can't live here anymore. Just like, and you, I think you said a T-Rex or some sort of thing. Yeah, I did. You're like, got to use an extreme. Yeah, use an extreme. But, you know, if we had T-Rexes, that would be, we all agree that would be amazing. And that'd be a very interesting animal to hunt and track down. <laughs> be very detrimental to, to our life. To a lot of things. Um, well, let's quail here. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, it's it when one thing maybe goes away another thing has the opportunity can you just talk momentarily too about your philosophy of land management here at spoke hollow yeah so and and really that's what's at the core of everything we do is land management so the hunting the fishing the education classes everything comes back to land management and our number one challenge as a thousand acres sitting in an area that probably the highest value for this ranch, like if you were looking at monetary value, is for it to be a subdivision. Cash out, you know, take the $100 million and go do something else in life. So when you're not doing that, when you decide that's not the direction you're going to take, it's because of passion. It's because of a love of the space. And when you have that love and passion, you start trying to figure out how do I take care of this? And how do I manage it? And our strategies have become hunting and fishing as the primary financial vehicle for that. And before I dive into like what the philosophies towards managing the land, I want to point out the reason we high fenced, the reason we do preserve quail Mm -hmm. here is because that's what pays to keep this place not developed. Mm-hmm. It's what pays for the fences. It's what pays for the road maintenance. It's what pays for cutting cedar. 
because you can't just own a piece of property and do nothing. If you own a piece of property, at least in the Texas Hill Country, and you do nothing, it turns into a cedar farm. Because nothing is not the same as what it used to be a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. A hundred years ago, doing nothing meant that there were bison that ran across the property. It meant that there were lightning strikes and fires that burned and, and did and, and cleared out trees. So taking a thousand acres that has subdivisions around it and doing nothing to it, you're still doing a lot because there's no bison, there's no fire, there's none of those things. So you get this overgrown place. Mm-hmm. And when you have a cedar forest, the repercussions of that are that the na- the natural grasses that are supposed to be on the property are non-existent. And the water that's supposed to be hitting the ground is not making it to the ground. And it's not filtering into the aquifers. When those things don't happen, it throws off the entire water cycle for the region, which is, which is what's currently going on in the Texas Hill Country. So there are two schools of thought. There's more than two, but there's two that I'll talk about in land management. One of them is you have the, the philosophy of preservationists, Mm-hmm. which are people who are like, let's just take a piece of piece of land and like keep it static as to what it is at this moment in time and give it no ability to change. And then you have conservationists that fall underneath a title that's kind of called like the New Green Gardeners. <clears throat> in that school of thought, conservation is not necessarily keeping a piece of property as what it is now and leaving it in that space. It leaves room for elasticity in managing a piece of property, which means that, look, what worked a hundred years ago on a piece of property may not work today. Like it is impractical to think that bison are ever going to function the way that they functioned a hundred years ago in the Texas Hill Country. They're, They're not like, good at using stoplights and stuff to terrible. get here. They're terrible at it. They yeah. fail their driving tests. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, they don't know the gate code. No, not at all. And they just knock the gate over which nobody's cool with that, you know. They get tickets all the time. They wind up in bison jail. But, you know, I mean, like, they're not a practical animal anymore. Mm. But the function that they served, which was a large rumen grazing animal across the prairie, is still a needed function. Now, we have changed the scope and the scale of how things operate, and we have made them no longer a viable beast. And I... I personally, and this may not be a very popular thing to say, I personally don't know if that's the worst thing out there. We're a part of nature. Humans are a part of nature. The things that we do are natural. That doesn't mean that we can say everything we do is natural, so I'm going to throw that can on the side of the road and, well, that's mm. just that's just part of nature now. You know, we have to be mindful and respectful of the things around us. But you also have to say, going back to the T-Rex example, like nature on its own without our hand extinct animals it makes things not exist anymore and that makes room for new things Mm. and humanity has to understand that our presence is going to cause some things to go away and that may be okay but if we are not conscious in the way that we do it if we're not mindful in the way that we do it um that's not okay so for example maybe bison can't live here in the hill country anymore but we need to make space for them to live somewhere we need to make mm-hmm. sure that there's a space for them because 
they're part of the balance that keeps us around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, here's the thing. Like, the planet isn't going anywhere. The planet survives some meteor strikes, a couple ice ages, some dinosaurs coming and going. We're not working to save the planet. We're working to save ourselves. Mm. And keeping the land and the world intact as it is is part of the balance that keeps us here. And so as a new green gardener on this ranch, like pronghorn used to run here, for example. And now that's not practical. A thousand acres is not enough room for a pronghorn to go hauling around this property. But, you know, from India, black buck, they're an antelope. They're grazing species, so they don't compete with whitetail. So whitetail are, a, are, are not a grazing species. They're a browse species, so they eat woody mass and forbs. They eat the things that we would call weeds and the things that we would call new wood shoots coming up, like little oak trees and things like that that are coming up. That's a primary source. Mm -hmm. um, acorns and a little bit of soft mast, but they don't have a large enough rumen to process grass. So if I throw on, say, a bunch of like axis deer on my property, that's not going to be congruent with a whitetail because axis deer, like we were talking about earlier or the other day, they eat all the same things that deer eat. So they compete for them with food and then they also graze. So after they eat all the deer's food, they're going to go to grazing mm -hmm. and now the whitetail have nothing to eat and they're getting out and competed by axis. But let's say as a new green gardener, I say, well, I want to put some black buck on the property. They're not going to compete with my whitetail. They'll be complementary to the native species that's here. And they'll do the same function that the pronghorn antelope was doing, which mm -hmm. is to graze the property. Now I have just done something. I've added something back to my property to keep the balance. And so you would say your primary focus is the actual land and not being overly concerned about it looking like the species of 100 years ago, but trying to preserve the land to look like what the land looked like a hundred years ago. Am I tracking right on that or no? No, I, I mean, no, actually that's not what I want to do is let's, let's put it this way. If you were to look at me and you were to say, Hey Josh, I'm going to take you back to being 16 years old. Like mm -hmm. what you look like at that point in time, I would say absolutely not. I don't want to be 16 years old. What I want to do is be, I'm 47. I want to be 47 but I want to be the highest functioning capacity of my 47. I'm traveling in my own linear timeline. I don't want to go backwards. I don't want to be what I used to be. I want to be free to develop and change, but I want to be at my highest level of usage. So mm -hmm. with land management for me, it's not about taking it back to some place like before Europeans showed up mm -hmm. or taking it back to, you know, wherever. It's about where's the land now and what is the best healthiest thing I can do for this land mm. at this moment in time to turn it into its best of where it is now mm -hmm. and give it the ability to change and move into the future, but continue to resonate at a high level. And that typically means fighting monocultures. So if cedar is becoming a monoculture that's overgrowing, it means like I got to get rid of that cedar. It means that I'm looking for diversity in the landscape because most landscapes have very healthy diversity to them. So I need to introduce and make sure that there's space for as many animal and plant species on the property as mm -hmm. possible. If I see a monoculture taking over, then that's something that I need to be looking at. I need to be like, okay, I see that that grass, like whatever it is, if it's KR blue stem, which is a non-native grass from Africa that got introduced. If I see that it is pushing into a pasture and pushing everything out, then I know that's that's a place where I'm going to see some imbalance 
So I got to do something about that. I got to burn it or do something to, to bring balance back. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm tracking with you now. And, and you talked about with your approach, with the new green gardener approach of, of land management, that to many people, that's not popular. And something that I picked up from our time together this past week is that you're not very, you're not somebody who's very concerned about what's popular. As in, you don't seem to be worried about going with the grain of what everybody else is saying. I'm curious, have you always been like that with, with different elements? Has, have you always been a little bit okay with being maybe contrarian to popular opinion? Or is that something that's developed as you've grown in your education? I think like since I was younger, my the way I've approached everything in life a lot of time, often the way things I pro- approach things in life is I don't look at what other people are doing. I pick up a problem or I look at a problem and I start to think about my own creative ways to solve it. And sometimes that means that I reinvent a shittier wheel, honestly, <laughs> like, like a square <laughs> wheel. But what I find is by not looking what everybody else is doing, you can get your own creative solutions that way. And then after I've established sort of my opinions on things, I start to go out and research and find other people's opinions and start to add those things. But I guess to answer your question, no, I don't care about what's popular. I'm not going to just do something or go down the road with something because it's a popular way to be or because it's the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. I don't really think that the way accepting that this is the way we've always done things is how progress happens or how change happens or how we become better as human beings. I think we become better as human beings by asking questions, by taking on the challenges. It's like, you know, um, one of the things that I've appreciated hanging out with Drew, you know, over the past four days, five days, I don't know how long it feels like a week or two. It's been great months (laughs) (laughs) is that, you know, Drew's approach is like, don't challenge me because if you challenge me, I'm going to, I'm going to break the challenge every time he's driven by that challenge. And that's very similar to me. I guess I am a contrarian. I'm like, I want to do it different. I want to do it my way Mm -hmm. or it's not worth doing at all. (laughs) Well, and one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, hanging out with you. I I, I can tell you're just in, I've interviewed a lot of people like this. You pay a lot of attention to detail. So it's not just, Hey, here's a 20 gauge. I like the way this feels. It's here's 20 gauge. Here's why I chose this 20 gauge. And here's the history of it. Here's the year it was made. Here's why this is this way. And, um, Drew's like that in the same way, very high attention to detail. And you can tell two people who did their homework. And even right now it's like, you're saying, Hey, this might not be a popular opinion, but I can talk for hours about why I chose to go this way. Mm-hmm. And I, I always appreciate that because it's also not just being contrarian for contrarian sake, which is the same thing as just, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing and not think for myself. Mm-hmm. Then you meet people who are like, I'm going to not do what everybody's doing. And I still didn't think for myself. I just like feeling <laughs> like I'm in the minority because it makes me feel special, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious for, for both of you and uh, we'll, we'll let you go first, Josh, but just what's your approach to trying to to research and learn information? What tips would you give to somebody to let's say, let's put it this way? What tips would you give to somebody who's trying to learn things for themselves and actually think through things for themselves? Okay, I mean, I think t- to me, depending on what it is you're trying to learn to do or trying to think through on your own, I think it's good to start with that foundation of 
just daydream on the problem or daydream on the subject. Don't allow anything outside influences to really permeate. But then I typically pick up books. Like I love to read. I, I love to read. I love to research. And so then I'll dive in and just start consuming everything in the space. And for me, the, the <coughs> projects that I've taken on typically are things that once I've read a lot, if I see a space for me to improve, change, or do something better, then that's going to be a project that I pursue. Mm -hmm. If there is no space for me to improve, change, or do something better, then I'm not going to do it because I want that challenge of doing something new or better. So I would say take a bunch of information in, then find your own path and set the challenge out for yourself to chart your own course. I mean, that's, that's how I think you, you learn is by pushing yourself with challenges. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say I have a similar process, but um, I'm more of a visual or kinesthetic learner. So if there's something that I want to do, I, I tend to um, first figure out exactly what the skill is or whether it's cooking a certain thing or learning a new technique or something. And then I go for the, the, the absolute ground level. Like I kind of strip the veneer off and then go down to screws and then I start learning from the base up and I'm just not happy with it unless I know how to do the process and I'm comfortable with it and I'm comfortable enough to teach someone else how to do it. And then I try to, I, I, I don't know if becoming like the best at something is the right way of saying it, but I want to be the best that I can possibly do it and be comfortable with my performance or ability so i'll just keep practicing 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 repetition repetition is kind of my mo mo on things so i think you know i don't have a, a whole bunch of um time in or the passion to sit down and just read something at nauseum like i'd rather like dive right into it like okay <laughs> i'm gonna i need an expert who's gonna show me how to do this and then I'll learn your technique and then maybe I'll start refining the things that I like or don't like and then make it my own. And something even Drew and I were talking about over coffee this morning was I think what holds people up so much, and I'm curious your thoughts as somebody who's trying to build a campus mm -hmm. to teach people this is, and, and I can even put it this way, one of the biggest barriers is not that people don't want to do it, it's that they don't ever want to have their freshman year. I want to be new to it. Mm -hmm. And something interesting about you that I know is that although you grew up fishing and we have some fun stories about how you got into that, because mm -hmm. I think, I think the, the story about how you got into fly fishing is really funny is that you got into hunting later in life. Mm -hmm. But for you, how do you try to help that, that I, I think there's somewhat of a, a kind of aversion that people have to being novice especially later in life. They just don't like feeling like they don't know. Nobody likes that feeling, mm -hmm. you know? But if you want to get into something, you're going to have to go through that a little bit. How do you help people, at new people coming into Spoke Hollow, just try to embrace the fact that it's okay that you're not an expert because this is your first day showing up? Yeah, so I, I have a saying that I really, and I think it applies to hunting and fishing, fly fishing, upland hunting, but probably all things in life. Um, before I give that, I, I want to say that one of the keys to learning is perseverance. And that's something that, that drew, whether it's a breakdown model or a reading model, it's perseverance. 
Like, just don't give up. You just tenacity and grit. Just, yeah. just keep grinding. Just keep going. Just no matter how tough it is, you just keep mm. going, and then you get there. But, um, you know, don't be afraid of what anybody else thinks about what you look like when you're doing the thing. Just get it out of your mind, because everybody looks silly doing the thing, whether it's fly casting or running dogs or whatever it is, and. I like to say that no matter how long you've been doing this, fly fishing's great or upland hunting, whatever, just being in the outdoors, in these spaces, we're all learning something new every day. Every single one of us is on the learning curve, Mm -hmm. learning from each other and learning something new. So when you enter the space, just know that the best of the best are still on the learning curve. Mm -hmm. They're just in a different place. So just jump on the curve and start rolling along and it's only a failure if you quit that's right right. like you're gonna suck (laughs) know that when you start you're Mm -hmm. you're not gonna start at the top so Mm -hmm. you gotta put your time in like everybody else and don't take yourself too seriously and it's okay to look like you're not an expert and have fun if it's not fun don't do it if you find that, like, hey, I'm fly fishing because I thought it looked cool, um, but I'm not having fun, well, then go try upland hunting mm-hmm. or go try rock climbing or go try something else. Yeah. You know? Well, one of the things that I appreciate about today, too, is, you know, I, I'm very young in my outdoor journey and specifically young in certain areas like upland hunting and stuff. But today, you know, it was fun for me because, you know, we start the morning off and we're doing a little bit of upland hunting and you're getting to even teach Drew a few things. Turn around, we get on the river together, we get on the creek together, and then Drew's giving you a little bit of pointers even on your casting. So it's like, you know, you guys are both established, you know what you're doing, but at the same time, there's always this desire to learn. And I've seen that from my vantage point as being able to interview everybody from flip palette to, you know, you name it, that those people still, I like the way that you put it, they're still on the learning curve. And I think that one of the things that I want to do is encourage people to say, Hey, you know what, when you get around somebody who's better than you, rather than thinking so much about the chasm that exists between you and that person, your perceived view of how much better they are than you, you could actually just say, Hey, what could I learn from this person? Mm-hmm. You, there's not going to be a scoreboard at the end of the day that says, Hey, guess who's the better person? 99% of the population doesn't even care if somebody can shoot better than another person can cast better than another person can tie a fly better than another person. But if you love what you're doing, if you love hunting, you love fishing, you care that you're a little bit better the next time you do it. Stop worrying about all that and start thinking about, Hey, you know what? I'm here with somebody that, you know what the truth is? They're better at shooting than me. And, and more times than not, they're more than willing to share any nugget or knowledge they can to to help mm-hmm. you on your journey and make you better or more efficient or make it easier for you. They're, you. All you have to do is ask. Yeah, and what I find is the people who are really good at this, people who are really passionate about this, the people who really love, uh, whether it's fly casting. And it, wait, by the way, have you seen Mr. Drew C here cast a rod? Because yes. it's intimidating <laughs> is all hell. Like, the guy can cast. It, like, it's, it's a beautiful thing. 
And so to be able to get some tips from him, you know, is, is pretty amazing. But I think the people who are really good at these things, they're willing to teach a board to do it. <laughs> we, I'm like, <laughs> we love it. And so it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, who you are. Like the people who are passionate about being in the outdoors, they just want to geek out and talk about the thing they love. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. Like you find in fly fishing, a billionaire next to a, a, a fish bum, you know, and the same thing with upland hunting. You see guys who are running, shooting a $500 uh, gun and a dog they train themselves standing right next to a guy who's shooting a $100,000 purdy with some high pedigree dog that the best of the best, Ronnie Smith or somebody trained for them. But those two people will have a conversation, and it'll be a passionate conversation, and it does not matter mm. what walk of life or what they look like. And that's one of the things I just want everybody to know about learning and any intimidation in the outdoors is the people who really love it will welcome you and just want to share with you. And if you get anything other than that, then you're not talking to somebody you want to learn from. Yeah, when I was a kid, my dad used to always tell me a full glass never gets water. <laughs> so if you if you don't yeah. think that if you don't think that there's anything for you to learn, people aren't going to give it to you. They're not going to teach you. But mm -hmm. as you said, if ever if you perceive everybody's on a learning curve, yourself included, you're going to pick up all sorts of little things. I mean, and sometimes the smallest little things, like uh, Drew showed me something today on even how to pack my fly rod down into two pieces in a way that I hadn't been doing, just tiniest little nugget. Mm -hmm. And now I, I won't ever pack my fly rod down the same way. Mm -hmm. Just a little tiny thing. But if you think about, wow, I'm, that's another little brick, that's another little paver in my path, what is it gonna be like 30 years from now mm -hmm. when I have thousands of those little things? And I think that's really exciting. And the people, and in, in, from my experience, that have been the most successful are the people that love every little nugget that they get along the way. And so they're just mining it from each other and it's a lot of fun and nobody's going to look down on you if you're new and young to something. And I can say that because I didn't realize the, some of the stereotypes around fly fishing and the community around fly fishing and how snooty everybody is. But when I showed up and was like, Hey, I want to learn more about this. People were really generous. And of course people are snooty and people can be jerks. Yeah. That's, so can doctors. Have you ever been around yeah. a bunch of doctors? <laughs> I grew up <laughs> I mean, in a everybody. house with a doctor. That's called being human. That's yeah. just humans being humans. But I found that, like, you know, people, I was always surprised. Like, if I'd say, hey, will you do an interview and share your story and teach them things? Very few people, less than, less than I can count on one hand, have ever even said no to that. I, I think, <clears throat> for me, the thing I keep in mind is you can't teach someone something that they believe they already know. So I always try to come across as like, hey, I I'm here to learn just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you may perceive me as being uh, skilled in one area or the next, but there's always something to pick up. Like you said, little nuggets or gems mm -hmm. you pick up along the way. Those are the things that just make you better, more efficient, or make it more fun. Yeah. Well, and I think too is like, there's two, man, there's like my, my mind's racing right now. There's two things I want to talk about. One is that I think, is a, is a teacher, which I find myself doing a lot, particularly in the uplands, is I typically tell people, hey, look, I'm going to say a bunch of things that you probably already know. Um, and 
So then I go down a breakdown of like things that maybe they already know or maybe they don't already know. Um, but like, I think that when you say that, it allows people to say, okay, I'm just going to let this guy go. And maybe they pick up some stuff. And it's like when we were in the field today, I was like, look, I'm just going to talk and just talk about everything that I'm seeing. And like, you may know some of it and just tell me if you're, and that's really important, especially when everybody's got a gun in their hands, you know, (laughs) safety issues. Nobody stopped you. Me and Drew were like, nobody was like, Hey, you know what? Yeah. Let me just stop you here. Yeah. I was raised by a hunter safety instructor and you know, it it doesn't hurt. I want to hear it again. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody's going to shoot that down. No. And I think that's, that's great. I think it's the way to go is just like share. And that's just share your knowledge. Don't Mm. assume. And I guess that's the thing is don't assume that all the people that you're fishing with or hunting with or any of those things that they know everything and don't be embarrassed to share the information Mm. that you have. Because that's, I think another thing too, is people get in a group of people and they assume, Oh, these people are all know these things. Yeah. And you know, just because you saltwater fly fish every day, doesn't know, doesn't mean, you know, all there is to know about Guadalupe bass. I mean, I I was all ears today. I mean, tell me which, you know, I I might be able to cast to them, but Mm -hmm. you've caught a thousand of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I, I was interested in with you just kind of full circling here and what we're talking about is your experience into getting into hunting. Because I've, I grew up hunting and fishing, a little bit of everything, not an expert in anything. My dad worked really hard my whole life to give me experiences. And the older I get, the more I realize, like, my dad was eating food that he didn't want to eat and doing a lot of things that he didn't want to do so that I could just have a sliver of certain opportunities at things. I'm not great at any of those things, but I have a base. And he worked really hard to give me that base. And even with a base of hunting, you know, I shot ducks and deer and all sorts of things growing up as a kid. Even now it's like, okay, I want to get more into upland bird hunting, get a bird dog, start reading books. I have good connections. It's still intimidating to me. And I have a base of hunting Mm -hmm. for you. You went through this as an adult. We're not talking about getting into upland as somebody who has a base in hunting. We're talking about getting into hunting as someone who has a base in nothing there could you tell me first just your story of how you went from somebody who grew up in a family who wasn't super immersed in that and then how that journey maybe shaped you to where you are today yeah yeah and i think i'll i'll start that with some of the things and reasons why i think people feel locked out of hunting i think fishing is a little more egalitarian and it's got like a little bit more easier access point to it Mm -hmm. but i think hunting is something that people feel locked out from one of the reasons that both fishing and hunting have seemed, I think, exclusive goes back to Europe. It goes back to land ownership, and it goes back to the idea of a certain class of citizen in the aristocracy being the only people who were allowed to hunt and fish on lands. That's where you get this idea. Like That's not the way this world works anymore, by the way. But still... That is a stigma, I think, that's ingrained into fly fishing. When somebody sees a fly fisherman, they think of there's somewhere in this filing, the lexicon of our culture that goes back to this idea that there was an aristocracy and people couldn't hunt and fish. Mm. And not only did they have time, but they had money. Yep. And yeah, you're not usually thinking, even though this isn't always the case, that guy's probably going back to an apartment. <laughs> yeah, you're not. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I yeah. mean, even for me, it's true. And I know that that's yeah. not always the case and that's a great point we have these stereotypes that we've placed on 
hunters and anglers. And even in the U.S., like fast forwarding out of Europe, there was a point in time where, like you know, particularly with upland hunting, where it was plantation owners and it was large landowners, and they were the people who were allowed to do these things, whether it be again because of time, or whether it be because of land and access. Um, but with hunting, for me. Um, my first window, my earliest window, my earliest view, my glimpse into hunting was I grew up um, as a Jehovah's Witness in a family that was anti-guns. And I grew up in a family where I did not have a very strong relationship with male figure. My father, I don't know, my, I did not know my biological father. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a strong relationship with my stepfather. And I didn't have a male figure. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up... Um, back and forth between Colorado and Texas. I didn't have a tough life. I'm not, I'm not saying that. So there's no boo-hoo here. Like, I grew up in beautiful places, and I grew up a very, like, privileged life. But I just didn't have a strong male role model in that life. And I remember my earliest view was, I was telling you, being in middle school and seeing these kids who were getting ready. It's the early season, dove season, dove opener, September 1. They show up in camo, and they're going to leave school. Texas Christmas. Texas Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Let it snow. Feathers. (laughs) Is that what they say? Uh, No, but that's Uh, what I just said right then. Oh, wow. Trademark. People people think it. Yeah, people think it. So, you know, and I remember seeing these kids show up, and I was like, man, these kids are going to leave school early. And I was super jealous of that. And then... The other part that I didn't admit to myself at that point in time is that they were going to go do something with their dad. It was mostly males at that Mm. point in time. And then so sort of this like this jealousy turned into a deep envy pretty quickly at that point in time. And when you're um, when you are a young teenage middle school boy and you find yourself or girl or just young teenager uh, and you find yourself envious of something the defensive posture is to figure out why you don't want that thing. Mm. And so me as a biracial tan young male, I looked and scanned the room and said, what can I find to hate about this? And the first place I went to is, well, these are all young white kids and they're all, they all look like Bubba's (laughs) in their camo. (laughs) And I was like, so they're all racist and they all hate me. And I hate them, and I hate the thing they're doing, and I want nothing to do with it. And that was a setup that I built in my mind as a teenage boy. And that was something that carried all the way through. I associated with guns, guns and rednecks, guns and bubbas, guns and racists, guns and, you know, it just became a, a built-up thing, you know. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s here on this ranch, um, which is... A ranch that is my wife's family's ranch. Her grandfather bought it, and we have now become the stewards of this property. But the transition to becoming the stewards of this property started with me reading a book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it's a book that has three chapters in it. It covers three different food systems in it. It covers the, you know, factory farm food system, the one that creates the beef that, that does not agree with my friend Drew here. Um, <laughs> Violently. <laughs> it, yep. it, it has the, it covers the sustainable farm movement and it covers the hunting and foraging movement. Mm. After reading the sustainable farm movement, like really, I started to get an understanding of what land management was from that book, like what it means to create 
um, soil, what it means and how important that is for the earth to have like a soil machine working, what that means to rain systems, what it means to the climate. And so I started to realize, man, like that ranch is just sitting there and no one is doing anything. No one's stewarding it. No one's doing anything. So I was like, Hey honey, we should start a sustainable farm there and we should, um, you know, take care of the property. So I did the thing where I read for like a year, Joel Salzen's stuff and, um, who's a, who's one of the lead, um, voices in regenerative farm agriculture. And then I was like, great, I know all this information. Now let's go plant a garden. And I built this garden. Um, it's all like stones that were these raised beds that were built from stones, like right around. And let's just spin That's the, the one by the caboose. Yeah. Right by the caboose. It's yeah, really so, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so I built cool, this yeah. garden and I was like, okay, let's go plant some, some vegetables. Hmm. So we planted and it took me about a whole of a week to realize that I freaking hate gardening. And so it's really not that I hate it. I just did not have the patience for it. Yeah. It was not fast enough for me. And I'm kind of ADD. And then, so I lost sight of it. And then everything died. And so I thought back to the book. And I realized that at this point in time, I was really committed to participating in my food chain. And so I was like, well, I'm going to have to learn to kill something. I'm going to have to learn to shoot a gun. Because that's like, easier than growing a tomato. If kind of some is. ways it kind of yeah. is. In some ways it is. And and I will tell you that like I so I, I took a class on butchering a hog because I figured that putting a hole in an animal wouldn't be that difficult. It was really just learning to fire a firearm and like you know, particularly in Texas you can use blinds and you use feeders and so like you know getting the animal in and doing that I was like that's not a hard problem but turning a damned animal into food is a whole nother conversation. Mm. So I took this class, learned how to butcher Came out by myself, shot a deer, went up to the deer. I cried. I, I cried like a baby. Why? Mm, it's the gravity of taking a life. Um, the gravity of like coming face to face with doing something that you can't undo. Like there's no undoing that. There's no like, ooh, let's just put all that back in the jar. No, it is a dead animal. This one's too small. Go ahead and let him go. <laughs> yeah. Can I pause no, here for a moment? Because yeah. I have a curious thing, and I'm 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 interested in Drew with because we have similar backgrounds. Yeah, I have vivid memories. I killed my first year. I was probably in third grade. Okay. No emotion. Yeah. Now I understand a weight and gravity now as a grown man who's thirty that I didn't understand then. I'm curious though, your thoughts on, do you feel like in some ways, taking the life of that animal as an adult taught you something that you would have missed as a kid? And Drew, did you have a, a deep experience taking the life of a, I mean, in a whitetail is a little different, but like than other animals. But. I think I was prepped for it pretty much from the minute I started shooting you know, my father, grandfather was a game warden. My other grandfather, you know, I was in his hip pocket squirrel hunting with him from his, you know, carrying a Red Rider BB gun. So I, I was kind of coached and, and trained and I had the reverence for the animal and, you know, my father can't eat beef either. So, you know, yeah. we lived on venison. So like I, I knew this i i want to say the the severity and the respect and the the whole thing so by the time i was old enough to go do it myself i i was ready to go and i and i was you know 
I had the right mindset. And do you feel like there was a depth there though? Like when, when I hear you say, I know what you mean Mm -hmm. as an adult, Mm -hmm. like you cried. It was that special. I saw a video of somebody today catching their first permit and they cried. Mm -hmm. No person who has ever gone down any of these paths looks at that and laughs because we know Mm -hmm. like just the depth, the work. I think there's a flood of emotion and it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You know, the sense of achievement, especially if it's something that you like catching a permit. Like, I mean, I think I cried and I caught my, I lost my mind, you know, like it, but like for hunting wise, it wasn't, um, I think I was so young when I did it. I didn't, I wasn't upset. I was more just excited and, you know, Mm -hmm. in the moment, my, my, father was so you know the proud dad and all that i mean you were like mm-hmm. the man you know so yeah. we put blood on my face you yeah. know as a kid and stuff but like it's, yeah just really we, quick like what is traditions that? that like take that sometimes take the gravity away honestly from so, what i have seen looking at youth programs and looking at things like that um and i also think that when i came to killing a deer at that point i was really looking at the big picture, really looking at and understanding how I was at a point where I was really trying to understand how everything in nature fit together and what the symbiosis of everything is. And so I think that gives you a different perspective. And I, and I find that, so I I take a lot of people, I used to have people who would lease were on a deer lease here at the ranch and, and I've taken yeah, okay. This is actually cool. Okay. So when we started doing mentored upland hunting programs and participating in mentored big game programs, okay? So those programs are typically designed to end with someone becoming a conservationist. Mm-hmm. That's the objective. That's the goal. And so I'll give you, we haven't talked about this actually in all the days we've we've spent together. So um, to give you a quick overview, I think this is going to answer this question of the difference between gravity of somebody who's been doing it their whole life and a new person. When someone comes to one of our programs, we have three phases in education. The first phase is tools and understanding the tools that you're going to use. The second phase is one that I call non-objective immersion in the space and then the third phase is objective oriented participation in the activity each one of those phases is punctuated with what we call a campfire moment so the very first campfire moment that happens when someone comes into one of our programs is tell me who you are how'd you get here what's your expectation out of this program we round robin that. Now, the person who's the facilitator in our program tells their story, but then they actually give a pretty well-rehearsed um, last point, which is what they hope to achieve. And what they tell people is, well, our goal is that each and every one of you becomes a sporting conservationist. And let's say, I know that's a term that you may or may not know, so let me back you into what that means. Mm-hmm. All hunters and anglers support conservation. But not all hunters and anglers are conservationists. And I always say you got to repeat that so they make sure they understand it. All hunters and anglers support conservation, but are not all hunters and anglers are conservationists. Through the purchase of their licenses and 
the Pittman-Robinson Act. They are going to fund conservation. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make you a conservationist. In order to become a conservationist, there are two things that need to happen. And one is that you have to adopt the philosophy of conservationism. And we define that in our programs is the concerted effort and understanding that we have the fiduciary responsibility to all of the present and future and past generations of humanity and all other living things on this planet to take our best efforts forward to responsibly use the resources that are here for us on this planet. That is the philosophy of conservationism. Now, if you adopt that, that philosophy, you're still not a conservationist because you have to take a step further and you actually have to take action. And that action can be joining a conservation group, supporting them through membership or financially. That, act, that, that action can be advocating with your voice. Don't mm -hmm. use your dollars, use your voice. That action can be grassroots. It can be planting trees. It can be creating habitat. It can be getting your hands dirty. It could be mentoring or trying to give somebody else the tools to do such a thing. And at the end of the day, what I tell everybody in this program, because we're talking to people in the program, is I say, hopefully, one of the easiest things that you can all do is you can stay educated on what bills are out there that impact the environment and vote for conservationism. And that then makes you a conservationist. So our goal is to get somebody in that space. And then I usually tell them, I know you came here to learn to fly fish. We kind of tricked you, you yeah. know, but we are going to teach you how to fly fish. And we believe that the best way to get you to become a sporting conservationist is as we teach you how to fly fish or as we teach you how to upland hunt is to give you the ability to view the world through the naturalist lens. And the naturalist lens is something that we believe is developed when someone takes a, a concerted effort to observe a species in its environment with the idea of understanding how that species impacts the environment and how the environment impacts that species. And through doing that, you will begin to develop your naturalist lens. And that will ultimately lead you to ask some questions about how do I impact that environment? How does that environment impact me? You will immediately reflect inward. That will force you to reflect back outward to the species. It will start having you look at all the other species around you. You start to see connectivity. And we believe that that naturalist wind will ultimately lead you to being a better steward of the environment. Mm. Hopefully, at the end of the program, whether it's quail hunting or whether it's fishing, you will want to be a steward for that species. But usually, we will tell people, if that's not enough, through the program, we're going to show you how conserving the spaces for those species will ultimately provide clean drinking water for the world. Because all conservation leads to clean drinking water at the end of it. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what <laughs> habitat you're protecting. At the end of it, it's all part of a big water filtration system. And that is something that I think everybody can get behind because it's kind of important to all of us. And then I try to bring it up a little levity because we get real serious there. And I'm like, well, let's go learn to shoot shotguns or like yeah. cast fly rods or whatever. We go out. We learn to use the tools. The next day we go out, we take the tools, and we go into the space. And I won't get into depth of that because it's not important and take up way too much time here. But we go into the space without a hook on the fly rod. We go into the space without shells in our gun. 
And I use about two and a half, three hours of time moving through the space to say, okay, let's pretend like there's going to be some birds flushing from that little blue stem over there. Well, that little blue stem is critical to the riparian zone because it has roots that grow 20, 20 feet down. And what you do is you take the objective-oriented process out so you as the instructor is no longer worried about shooting a bird. You're no longer worried about catching a fish. You can talk to them and teach people about the environment that they're in. It also sets the tone for the reason that we go there is not to kill or catch. The reason we go there is to respect and appreciate the environment that we're in. Then after that, I typically, this, the last phase is put the hook on the rod, put the guns, the shells in the gun, and actually go out and objectively approach. Now, there are two things that go on in this program. One, we bring people to be educated that have never been in the space before. Two, we invite people who have done it their whole life. Now, the first part of all these things I said, a lot of people who've been hunting deer their whole life have never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. We teach two people at the same time. And then that's when the guy who's been doing it their whole life cries. <laughs> that's so good. And I, I want to tie back because you talked about you care about people having a nature connection. It's interesting you sharing how you're educating people here at Spoke Hollow because I'm doing the same thing with my daughters and I've not articulated that way. But one of the things is sometimes my wife just wants the best thing that I can do to support her is just to take my daughters out to do something. Mm. So I'm like, what do I like, what do I do? Do I go to a gas station, get candy? Do I, you know, I live in, uh, I live in a rural area and it's not, there's not a lot of things to do around yeah. us as far as there's no arcades and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I don't even have cable TV at my house cause it doesn't reach there yet. And so what I started to do is 70% of my County, I live in the, one of the greatest counties, I think in one of the greatest States, we'll call it County, Florida is 70% of it is state land and federal land. So we have all these roads through all these state land areas. And so I started picking different roads and I started basically taking them. They, you know, they don't know this, but it's turkey scouting. It's scouting. It's just mm. looking around, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I pick random areas on a map and I'm just like, we're going to drive down this road as far as we can. And we're going to roll the windows down and my girls are going to look around and I'm going to engage them and give them binoculars and stuff. Right. Yeah. And I'm just doing what a lot of dads, moms do with their kids who want to get them in nature. I, Road hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Road hunting. <laughs> Here, hold the spotlight. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but he, that's exactly what I'm doing, right? Yeah. I just want him to be out there. We're not trying to kill anything. We're right. not trying to catch anything. My daughter's six and three, okay? Uh, they're not holding the gun around me. <laughs> yeah. Right? But that's what I'm doing to try to give them a connection. So we're talking about the same types of stuff to my best ability. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting that you say that because what you're getting to do is be in a way a father or a loving mother who is connected in nature to all of these people in a way that you didn't get experience in hunting growing up. Yeah. And I know drew with Lucy, you, you, you know, I, I jokingly, I was on a podcast, uh, and I, I was talking about my approach with kids and like th- there's like outdoor pageant dads who like force their kids into all these spaces mm-hmm. the same way that like a, pa- a quote unquote pageant mm-hmm. mom would, you know, it's oh, like, look at, my, it. look at my six year old throwing this fly. I don't mm-hmm. care if you throw, mm-hmm. I don't care if you ever throw a fly rod. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me, but I do want you to have a connection to nature. Yeah. And Drew, I'm even curious with you and Lucy, cause I know you have a similar approach. Yeah. So I had, um, you know, a little bit different experience with Lucy, you know, she, um, from from as old as, let me, let me put it this way, from 
the moment she was old enough to go with me, I dragged her everywhere because I really wanted her to be like my fishing or hunting buddy. I wanted to have a partner in crime. So I had, you know, I could go do it. I wasn't doing it by myself all the time. And I had so much to teach her. And I just wanted to just like feed her with a fire hose. And I think from a dad that's so passionate in the industry, um, you know, it, it was like almost overwhelming for her. Mm -hmm. Like it was too much pressure, right? And when I was a kid, uh, I had an older brother, and my dad took us to do everything, and I just wanted to be included, right? I was mm -hmm. the youngest, so, like, my dad always made a game out of things. So it was, like, first, biggest, and most. You know, like, whoever catches the first one gets a dollar, or, you know. It was just, it was, I just couldn't get enough of it. Mm -hmm. And with Lucy, um, I had to really pump the brakes hard because I could see her kind of, pulling away quick like she wanted nothing to do with it because she's very competitive but she really didn't want to compete with me and and I just wanted her to be involved so I took the whole I guess hunting fishing element out of it mm -hmm. and I made it more about hey we're gonna ride through ding darling and we're gonna look at tarpon or we're gonna look at roseate spoonbills or you know we got an adult air rifle with a you know, a, a laser on it and Lucy loves shooting, but she, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's no pressure to kill an animal or catch a fish. She just likes the activity of mm -hmm. doing those things with me. So I, I think sometimes you have to kind of strip away some of the, some of the, the pressure yeah. and just do like, Hey, she loves shooting a bow. She loves shooting guns. So go get a gun that's fun for them, a twenty-two or a, yeah. a high-end pellet gun that's accurate, and just let them plink or, you know, let them go fling arrows for a while. You know, a thing that I notice about kids, um, and you've made a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> Do have a bunch, five. a bunch of children, five children. <laughs> but thing that I've noticed, and and what what resonates in what both of you guys are saying and also overlaps with the programming that we do is the non-objective oriented time in yes. nature. Kids do this naturally. You can walk up to a kid with a pile of rocks and some sticks and you ask him, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm playing. What the hell does that mean? I'm playing. I'm just playing. Like, hey, I just want to go over there and play. And that is a non-objective oriented space to be in. Kids are the best at it. They just play. And so I think that's that's a good that, that that's very much what you're talking about with Lucy. It's like we're just going to go into the ding darling. It's not going to be about catching a fish. It's not going to be about having an objective outcome. This is going to be about just enjoying a space and playing. See what we can see. You know, maybe it's an otter, maybe it's some baby tarpon, roseate yeah. spoonbill. We're just going to take a drive through and look around. And and a few of the best guides I know have sh have shared with me that more than a few that the way that they scout is without a rod mm -hmm. because they're solely there to observe. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to, to comprehend because we're so objective focused, meaning the objective is just to catch a fish, to kill an animal. And we're not going to go down the social media rabbit hole because nobody wants to go down that hole mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. But when you start thinking about got to get this picture, got to be able to brag to my friends check the box the objective becomes box checking and not learning mm. really good guides i've learned 
their objective is, well, I have a client in three days and I want to see how these fish are moving, if they're here, what they're doing, what water depth. And so the objective is not, they're not going, Hey, I, I need to go out and have a good photo of me with a grip and grin. They're saying, I need to understand what's happening here. It's a little different than what you're saying with kids because kids have a little bit more fun objective. But I do think that removing the pressure and the objective of the kill, the catch, and saying let's first have immersion, understanding, fun, is really important. And it's something that I have to try to, I think a lot of us, if not all of us, have to really watch in ourselves in the world today and say, do I love this? Am I really immersing and connecting with this nature connection to use your term that you used earlier? I think that's what we all want for our kids. I think that's what you want for every person that comes through this facility. Absolutely. And, and, and I think we need it. I think that when you get nature connection, when you, keep, when you develop a naturalist lens, what happens is you're forced to look at the connectivity between things in nature. That ultimately bleeds over into looking at how you're connected to your fellow humans, which I think makes us better citizens. It makes us better neighbors. It makes us more understanding. It makes us more empathetic. It makes us understand that we're all in this together. We are all in this together. And I think when you start to look at people who are truly in the outdoors, the truly outdoors people, they're, they're pretty understanding of a broad scope of people from different backgrounds because they get it. We're all in this together. We're here to, to steward a planet that is a good living space for us. And, you know, you were talking about this, like, idea, this non-objective phase for guides. I'll point out that I think that one of the best attributes for a guide to have ties back into something we were talking about, people being on different spots in the learning curve, is with with fishing guides i think sometimes they get so caught up in the idea of showing a client with the biggest fish possible because maybe that is going to feed their economic fire or their their ego or whatever objectives for i think the best guides are the ones who are like this client's going to leave here knowing something that they didn't know before whether that's about the habitat the estuary wherever they're at fishing they're going to teach them something about the fish. They're going to teach them something about the habitat. They're going to improve their cast. They're going to show them things that they can take away. A picture of a fish doesn't change you as a person. But becoming a better caster might make fishing more pleasurable to you. Understanding why a certain fly is going to work is going to make you a better angler. That's going to change you. Or understanding why a species is important to the habitat that you're in. That's going to change somebody. And so I would encourage guides, because I, I know there's a lot of guides who listen to your show. Encourage guides to look and change what success looks like. I, I can tell you that some of the best days I've had on the water weren't the most productive. They were the ones where I had a great conversation, where I learned something that I didn't know before, or the guide took the time to show me some place new or a new experience, you know, like, hey, we're going to go find fossils or the fishing's not great today. Let's open the fly box and let's talk about flies and the sink rates or, you know, just just the teaching moment. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, like I'm always learning, you know, even at this stage of the game, you know, I'm, I'm show me something cool, you know, yeah. and, and it's 
and my dad was really good at this with me growing up. And I think it's something that whether you're a guide, you're a parent, you're just a friend who fishes and hunts with people, whatever, it, you, anybody can pass this on. It's okay if the animal wins. It's okay if you go out and you don't catch that fish. It's okay if Drew, who's a very competent angler, takes 12 years to catch a permit. It's okay. That's what makes this whole thing so interesting. It's a journey. It's a journey, yeah. It's a journey. And it's like, you know, you it's going to happen when it's happening. And you know what? Drew's a way better angler than me, and I hooked a permit, and it broke the hook the second time I ever even tried. Sometimes it just goes down that way. That's nature. That's what's so cool about it. But if you're obsessive about all this stuff, the outcome, then you miss the actual connection. To, to bring it back to that, which is something that we all care about. And that's what really brings us all together. That's why we're all here right now. Two dudes from Florida, one guy from Texas are hanging out, not because we really just needed to put some meat in our freezer or because we're obsessively wanting to have certain photos, but because we all just want to have fun and connect with nature and, and be a part of that. And I think that's, that's such a helpful, such a helpful little segue that we had there. Another thing I know that you are passionate about, you're about to start a podcast. We just celebrated MLK. You you don't just want to see people connect with nature, but you want to build, and I like the way that you worded this earlier, and we had a very fun conversation in the car with some friends about <laughs> uh, all this stuff that um, that I'll digress from. But you, you said something I think really well. You wanted to help create on-ramps for people who traditionally haven't had on-ramps in the outdoor space, mm -hmm. whether it's upland, whether it's fly fishing, whatever. Could you just talk a little about what, about your upcoming podcast, what you're wanting to do with that, and about kind of the area that, that you want to try to help create more on-ramps for people? Yeah, I definitely can do that. I want Before we move, though, um, I want to say that one of the things is if, if you're an a, a, a objective-oriented person and, like, the goal is to catch fish, you should just be a bait fisherman yeah, because it's the most efficient way to do it. And it's <laughs> like, a lot of fun. I yeah, mean, I, 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 yeah. I, I like I mean, bait fishing. But yeah. that's, that's the thing is if you pick up a fly rod, you've ultimately just shifted everything. Like it's not about. If, if you want to catch numbers, throw the cast net. <laughs> that's the big, there you go. That, I mean, that's it. So, but um, bringing people to the outdoors that you would not traditionally think of being in the outdoors. I... It's been an interesting thing for me to watch. Um, during COVID, I had a, po a podcast called the Sporting Diversity Podcast. And during COVID, I started to do some work in the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion space. And I ultimately kind of stopped doing that work because it, it didn't feel genuine to me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out why it didn't feel genuine to me. Um, and I've recently started to really articulate and figure out why and where I want to engage and the reason it didn't feel genuine to me is because I saw a lot of programs that were specifically for bringing women to fishing like 50 50 or you know bringing black people to fishing like brown folks fishing or you know hunters of color or I saw these programs and I was concerned and a lot of those programs are very good programs by the way don't don't get me wrong I I think they're great programs. But what I started to feel concerned about was that those are not the approach for me. Like, here's the thing. I am a tan man. <laughs> there you have it. And, and here is the deal. I just want to go 
freaking fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm toning down my language, but like, I just want to go. I could say stronger words. I just want to go fishing, man. And like, here's the deal: if I want to talk to you about the experiences that I have had as a biracial male in the world, then I'll bring it up. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I just want to fish and be treated like anybody else who's out there fishing. I don't want a special fishing program for myself. I just want to go fishing and hang out with my friends and have a good time. And when these programs come around, it makes me feel singled out. And it just doesn't feel good to me. Um, But I also understand that for some people, that is a good on-ramp. It provides a soft on-ramp for them. And they want to be around people that they can more identify with because they're entering a space that they may feel is not safe for them or not welcoming for them. You know, and going back to like what we talked about earlier with like going back to Europe where aristocracy controlled hunting and fishing, like people have real fears about that. Like, mm-hmm. and if, if you're a black person, like, look, having a gun in your hand, that's a point in time where you're just, you're, you're, your butt would be shot dead. Like you didn't have a gun in your hand, you'd get killed. And that it wasn't that long ago. We're talking about probably like a hundred years ago. Like there's probably some people alive still at this point in time who are, who are around at a point in time. Or if you were black and had a gun, you were going to be a dead black dude mm. or a dead black woman. So when you think about that, right, mm-hmm. that there were many generations of, of creating a stigma, like you're the ones who get beat, not carry the weapons. It takes longer than 100 years for that to reverse. It takes longer than one generation for that to reverse. And so I understand that some people are afraid to get in the outdoor spaces. Mm. But I also don't think that creating programs that are ultimately re-siloing people through affinity groups back into a space where it's just the same faces and everybody looks the same, to me, that feels like separate but equal. To me, that feels like segregation. So creating a program where you give somebody a soft on-ramp to become comfortable in the space but then figuring out how you connect them into the community as a whole, which means that creating spaces where everybody's welcome, where you know, middle-aged white males are as welcome as middle-aged white females, as black females, as black males, as um, Asians, Hispanics, and, and ultimately um, people of different disabilities, creating a space where, where you can get to the outdoors and providing accessibility for everybody is an important thing. I feel that diversity programs should look like the diversity that they're trying to create, not look like segregated programs. Mm. It's just my opinion, and it's the thing that resonates best with me. So I do have a podcast that I'm going to start, and it's yet to be named. We're kind of getting to the, to the naming phase of it. And where we are right now, you have a hard time naming. For all the gifts that you have... Because we're sitting in the doghouse, the bunkhouse, the mm-hmm. gear locker. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I've noticed a, a pattern here of mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a commitment this, issues. This space, naming put, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're like, but also, have you noticed, Drew, that everything does? Everything does, you know, need a name. Mm-hmm. Which podcast you need a name, you know? But it's like, yeah. This is my like foraging program, and here's three. Likes to label things. things. Yeah, like, so your big label. I am a labeler of things. I like to. And that's how I. That's how I. That's how categorize I um, categorize them in my mind. But yeah, I mean, this is the bunkhouse, but it also is a doghouse, and it also is my gear locker, and it also and is also a content studio. You said it's a content studio and a bar. So, 
you know, writing studio. It's, yeah. There's probably all sorts of weird things. A lot of things. Also. <laughs> oh boy, the, a lot of a lot of things happen here. But you know, the podcast itself, whatever name it will go by, one of the first series will be talking to um, whatever affinity group is willing to step up and come and talk to me about what their plans for obsolescence is. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you see yourself going away? Whether it's 50-50 in the water, brown folks fishing, mm -hmm. hunters of color, minority outdoor alliance, whoever it is, how do you see yourself going away? And it often we'll hear them, I didn't dive too deep into this in some posts and stuff that I did, but I, you will often hear people say, we have, we hope for a day that we don't exist. Okay, well, what are you doing to make that happen? Mm -hmm. Have you invited middle-aged white males to your programs? Because that's probably a good step, is getting everybody in the room that's going to be part of actually creating diversity and putting them together and getting them comfortable mm -hmm. with being around each other in the space. And so what I'm hoping to do is, is inspire them and provide my ranch to help them to get to a place where we're all together and proud in the outdoors mm. to be together and understanding each other. And we had a group yesterday of people who we were all together for this all hands, good fleet ambassador kind of summit. Yeah. And we had an amazing conversation in the truck together and there was more than just just us three. And a lot of those things were said, we, we would not want to publish, not because they were nasty, not because they were bigoted, but just because it was just five people having really honest, good, open conversation. Mm -hmm. There was different ethnicity in the mm -hmm. car. There was male, female in the car. And it was a really great conversation. And I, I felt like everybody was actually trying to listen to each other. And there was joking and there was laughing and there were serious points made and there was differing views. And that needs to be normalized. It doesn't necessarily all need to be publicized. It, you know, sometimes people just need to be able to have a, a car conversation, a campfire conversation. But for me, it's interesting too because I have one of my daughters is black. And, you know, I. I'm trying to think, how do I translate some of these conversations to my two daughters, one who's white, one who's black? And I think it's, you know, some people want to shrug it off and say it doesn't need to be a conversation at all. And then some people, I think, to, to your point, um, it's there's a lot of finger pointing or, or it's, it feels segregative as like, oh, well, my black daughter needs to go be a part of this group. And that's where she belongs. Right. And that's where she's going to hunt and she's going to fish and she's going to do. I think for a lot of people were trying to say, how do we actually have real action to get to this? We're coming off MLK to get to this day where like, honestly, even today we're in the field. We have a guy who's biracial. We have several ethnicities right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is what we're hoping to see. So I think there's a lot of people who are frustrated at the conversation because it feels like there's no real steps. It just feels like there's just a lot of angry people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think you're right. There are a lot of angry people. Some people feel disincluded. Uh, actually, many people feel disincluded mm -hmm. on all sides. Um, you know, um, I feel like white males feel like they're under attack. I feel like, you know, uh, minority groups feel like they're not included and that they've been 
uh, oppressed for a long period of time, which they have. These are these are all mm-hmm. real things, and all the feelings are valid, and all the viewpoints are actually valid um, when trying to reach a resolution. You can't say that somebody's viewpoint is not valid if you're looking for resolution. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for resolution, then everybody's opinions need to be heard, and mm-hmm. everybody needs to work through towards a group consensus and a resolution. And that includes the racist AF, like white supremacists and people like that. Sure. It, or, or the racist AF black supremacists, because they, they exist on both sides. Like, that's the thing. Like, let's get real. It exists on all sides. Um, the militant women <laughs> who just hate men. They're, it's a thing. Like, I, I'll be the one who says it. Like, that, that people can cancel me or say it's not popular, but it's, it's real. That's a real thing. People on all sides are sometimes too far in a direction that they don't leave room for other people. And the thing is, is you have to provide a space. If we want to not let those people run the narrative and we want to get to a, to a real healthy, diverse world, then we got to take the power away from the people who are, pol- who are polarizing us. Hmm. And in order to do that, that means that you have to create a space where those conversations like we had in the car can happen. It's very hard for those things to happen on the internet. I'm not sure that's the appropriate place for those conversations to happen. Maybe it's in a podcast. I don't know. Maybe it's not a podcast. Maybe it's in your living room. Maybe it's with your friends. Wherever it is, you got to create. I remember, um, I remember, I want to use an example of something real quick. I remember looking at a photo from an event. It was a hunting event. And I remember seeing a bunch of brands involved with it. And I remember scanning the photo and I remember seeing a bunch of guys hunting and they were all white. And I remember thinking it brought back these feelings. It was a really cool event. There was some people who were not white. They were there, but they were there as service staff in the photo. And I remember uh, thinking yeah. there's all these brands involved in it. And I knew some of the brands. And I remember thinking, man, this is this photo embodies why I didn't feel welcome in this space before. So I remember I called because it's a brand photo. If it was a personal hunt photo, big deal. You're out with your friends, and that's what your friends look like. No big deal. But this had brands behind it. It had brands' names tied to it. So I called one of my friends and one of the brands. I said, hey, look. We talked for a while. It was early in the morning. I was hungover. And uh, I called him, and I was like, hey. We talked at this, and I said, well, I called you to rattle your cage. Are you ready for that at this time in the morning? He's like, sure. I was like, I just want to tell you that this photo, this thing I saw, made me feel not great. And, like, you can tell me that it doesn't matter to our brand that you don't feel great, and I will accept that as a valid response. Or you can ask me why and what can I do to make that different. And, of course, he's a good buddy. He's like, why and what can I do to make that different? And I said, well... You know, you can intentionally create and invite a little bit more diverse people to the space. Um, and their brand actually didn't have a lot of um, color or diversity in it. And I said, hey, look, I want you to go back through your feed because I've been looking at your feed. And I just want you to point out that everybody looks a certain way and everybody looks like a certain socioeconomic status. And again, it's your brand. If that's what you want and that's what you want to portray, that is perfectly fine. But I'm just giving you this perspective. And he was like, man, no, I just never thought of it that way. I never looked at this from that perspective. And I said, look, here's the deal. I'm your safe space. Like, if you guys have a question, if you want to say, hey, we were thinking about naming this new 
um, clothing line, camo print, old black Jim Urban Man camo. Like, actually, I said, like, if you're going to name it Old Nigger Jim Camo, you can call and say that to me. I'm not going to judge you. Yeah. I'm not going to get mad at you. I'm going to tell you, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) Now, if you call me 10 times and keep saying offensive things like that, I'm probably not going to take your call anymore. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give you grace. Yeah. And that's the thing that we need to get. It's not to a place where we cancel somebody for saying the wrong thing, but we give them grace and we explain, this is why I feel this way when you said the thing you said. You know, that's the only way any of this works. And we've yeah. gotten to a space where people are just like, oh, they said the wrong thing. We're going to cancel them. We're just, they're gone. Like, calling for people's heads on spikes. We're not getting to change that way. Mm-hmm. You're not getting anywhere. You're just creating more divide. So anyways, I don't know. Just yeah, well, no, I, and I think, too, we had a great conversation in the car because those conversations are the types of things that happen when you're hunting and fishing and driving around together and sitting at campfires together. And so I just think the, the reality is if we're going to have these conversations and we all believe what we say, we believe about the outdoors, let's have them around the outdoors. Let's have them in those places. They're great places. And I think you, when you do it like that, you strip away the fear of offending too, you Mm -hmm. know, like you're my buddy, I'm your buddy. Like, you know, here, here's, here's maybe what I don't understand or what you don't understand. And let's just air it out. Mm-hmm. T- tell me, tell me what mm-hmm. we need to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here, some nuance, you know, like, I mean, let's, let's also just be honest that the conversation needs nuance and we're not going to get nuance takes time and people going, I'm so tired of this conversation. Gosh, they're talking about it again. Well, we will never get nuance. I know? like that that term, grace. You know, it's yeah. like, it's it's a safe place. It's a free it's a free area. You know, like talk talk, talk about whatever you want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's the only way we're gonna get there. Is like you just gotta not get offended when somebody doesn't know what your trigger points are because yeah. they don't know because the divide or they're not educated on it. Yeah. You know that. They, everyone doesn't know everything about all issues, you know. Yeah, yeah. How could how could how could you expect anybody to do that? And they're frightened to talk about it because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to get fired from their job. Yeah, they don't want to get canceled. They don't. They don't get, and they don't whatever. want. To, a lot of people don't want to upset their friends. And some people honestly feel fatigued, and whether they sh- just talking about certain things in general, and whether they should feel fatigued or should not feel fatigued, we can have grace too and say, hey, I understand your fatigue, but let's keep pushing forward. Let's not give up. And I- I'm looking forward to the podcast um, and just people being able to follow along with that and see some of those conversations and appreciate oh, you for, for doing that. Um, I got one more question, and I mean, we could sit here all night. We, we could. Pr- we probably will. Wait, what time is it? Um, it's almost midnight, though. But you know, and, and I would love to do another podcast because, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of philosophical stuff, which I love to talk about just perspective mm-hmm. on life, perspective on outdoors. And to me, I want to understand that about you before we dive into all these technical things about mm-hmm. over and unders and things that happen. <laughs> and we will do a technical podcast together. Yeah, it'll be fun. And I think it'll be a lot of fun, but I think it's before we do that, it's, this is what, what we need to do to establish, you know, understanding each other. But with all the things that you're doing, in all the different spaces, if you could be known for one thing at the end of life, what would it be? Yeah, I love this question because I, I am where I am because of thinking about the question in the outdoors. So if I could no- be known for one thing in life outside of being a great dad, 
Yeah. <laughs> like, I should have taken that one yeah. off the table. That's off the table. What dad is going to be like, well, I don't yeah. care if my kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, uh, I want to be known as somebody who provided the most pathways and gateways for people to get into outdoor spaces and help them to ignite a passion for being connected to nature and understanding that they are part of nature and understand their, their responsibility as a part of nature. That's that's what I want to be known for. Mm-hmm. Not the best fly caster. It's not going to happen. I learned today when not I'm out as long with Drew. as Drew's alive. That's right. <laughs> um, but I don't want to be known as the best upland bird hunter. I don't want to be known as any, I want to be known as somebody who opened the door and was a gateway for people to get out there and do the things. And maybe some of those people will become the best upland bird hunter or the best fly caster. Mm-hmm. And by de facto, I can feel proud to play a role in that path. Well, thank you for playing a role in my pheasant journey. <laughs> <laughs> Hammered those birds. Today. That was like, that was fun. I was like yelling involuntarily because <laughs> I was just so excited. And it I mean, fun. I think that's interesting too because before we, before we wrap up, there's these moments where like, it's just such a natural, not everybody's response is the same, but it's like so much, we have so much control, especially as we get older, like hopefully, like I have so much control. Like if somebody cuts me off at the airport, I'm not going to scream. Yeah. But man, I shot my first pheasant and I screamed like a little girl. <laughs> you did. <laughs> and I think that's what makes it special, right? Yeah. Drew, did you say you cried or you screamed or you cried and screamed when you caught your permit after? T- I mean, yeah, it was just a flood of emotion i finally got one to the boat you know i had so yeah. many near misses where they leader broke or the hook straightened or you know it just it was like one after the next but once it happened i think i picked up nick from Blackfly off the ground he was the guide and i mean i squeezed him and like it was like an uncomfortably long hug <laughs> you know, i remember looking back at the video i was like man i really hugged the heck out of that guy <laughs> but it's like that's that's what it, it, whether it's a pheasant, whether it's a whatever it is, uh-huh. it whether it's spotting your first like snowy egret or yeah. golden cheek warbler as a bird watcher, or whether it's just having you know, I ask myself, will I ever be as connected to nature as the two people who were making music and potentially making love on the <laughs> river today? Oh boy, <laughs> I didn't know that we were going to talk. We about were going to talk the, about it first. I had Christmas. to just say it for a moment. We were fishing. they were connected to the universe. I think it's a lot of drums through drums and mushrooms, probably. <laughs> yeah. But like through something, you know, I think it is like even those, those strange people, which we have video of that. That's going to surface somewhere around here at yeah. some point in time. There were two people we were, we were fishing. We were walking down the river and two people were playing guitar and bongo and one was the, naked when we showed up. But the, she one, put her one, top back one on. One was naked. Yeah. The other one was barely naked. And there, <laughs> you said it, you actually knew the name for what they were doing. Well, they were just like Hare Krishna. They were like, oh, Hare Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. They were okay. doing like chants, like okay. possibly Vedic chants. But, you know, yeah, that was wild. But I do think you that. Do, do you have a program for that? Was that your program? The, <laughs> the Vedic chant? Yeah, oh, that's the what Vedic my program? podcast will be called. But I think the thing is, is that whether you're enjoying the outdoors like they were, and when we came back, they were like wrapped in an embrace, like staring at each other's eyes very quietly, and it was awkward as all hell. Yeah. But I think that whatever you're doing, you're screaming when you shot your pheasant, you're 
you know, overcome with joy when you caught your permit. When we engage with the outdoors, and I think the thing that all of us try to take to other people, you're doing it through a podcast. Drew, you do it through multiple forms of media, writing, books, hosted trips. I do it through my mentored programs. We are playing in the outdoors. And we're unlocking that joy that you have when you're a kid. I think getting close to nature does that. It brings you back closer to your natural state, your natural order. You're looking at how you're connected to things. And you play. And when you play, you release that inner child that mm-hmm. allows you to like scream uncontrollably when you shoot a pheasant to have that joy. And, uh, man, we, we can't end on a better note than that. Um, but I'm so grateful for our time here and getting to hang out. Drew, thanks for sharing with both of us throughout, of course, throughout the times. time here and um, eating some great food. And I think we got one meal in front of us, so mm-hmm. high hopes. Uh, but thank you guys for hanging out and look forward to doing it soon. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Collective. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Now check out some live music from Tanner Ussery in our time in Port O'Connor, Texas, with all hands.
Chasing dreams, still shooting at stars. 